Before we get started, I wanted to thank Prevail Infoworks, the sponsor of today's podcast. Prevail Infoworks is the only global, full-service, tech-enabled CRO and e-clinical service provider harnessing historical and publication data alongside ongoing study data in real time. Get the most out of your study data and schedule a demonstration of this service for yourself at www.prevailinfoworks.com. And be sure to meet the Prevail team at the Outsourcing Clinical Trials East Coast Conference in May or at their offices in Philadelphia. Again, take a moment and explore their new look website at www.prevailinfoworks.com. Check them out. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Ron Cape, co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Cetus, the first biotechnology company, died earlier this month at 82. Cetus, which developed PCR technology as well as beta serin and interleukin-2, has faded from the minds of industry watchers, but its impact has been lasting. The company not only provided scientific, but financial and cultural innovations that helped shape the industry. Chiron acquired the company in 1991. We spoke to Mark Jones, Director of Research for the Life Sciences Foundation about CAPE, the innovations he made, and his lasting contributions. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Danny. We had news at the beginning of the year that Ron Cape, a, a true visionary and the founder of Cetus Corp, the, the first biotechnology company, died. He was 82. Yeah, I've been a bit stunned by the lack of coverage his death has received, and I'm hoping you can help put into perspective for our listeners the role he played and, and the contributions he made in building the industry. Uh, before there was a Genentech, before there was an Amgen, even even before there was recombinant technology, there was Cetus. What, what was Cape's idea in launching a biotechnology company when, when there was no such thing, to, so to speak of? Mm-hmm. You're right. Uh, Genentech is widely known as, as the first biotech company, and it was the first recombinant DNA company. But Cetus was founded five years earlier, also in the Bay Area in, in Berkeley. And Ron Cape was one of the founders with his partner, Pete Farley, and Donald Glazer, who was a Nobel Prize winning physicist who decided to change fields in mid-career after winning his Nobel Prize. And uh, they uh, struck up a partnership with Moshe Alafi, who was an entrepreneur, investor, and Berkeley Bon Vivant, uh, well-known around town, friends in the local intelligentsia, and knew the, the beat writers, Lawrence Ferlinghetti and, and those people. And he was also a, a high-tech entrepreneur. And at that time, Cetus was founded in 1971, there was a lot going on in the San Francisco Bay Area. 1971 was the year 
that the Santa Clara Valley became Silicon Valley. Uh, there was so much going on there that it was attracting attention, you know, worldwide attention as the the place for high technology. And I think Ron Cape at that time was uh, working on a, a PhD at at Berkeley in biochemistry. And he saw what was happening in Silicon Valley. And at the same time, uh, the, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurial ventures being started um, in you know, computing and, and software and, and um, information technologies. But also at Stanford, I think a lot of biomedical devices were being invented. Uh, you know, in previous years, um, money from the NIH had flooded in to high-profile uh, uh, research institutions such as Stanford. And, uh, and that that gave rise to uh, you know efflorescence of technology, including biomedical technology. So I think Ron Cape saw that and saw opportunities there. And he was a biochemist, and he was well aware of. Uh, in fact, he said that uh, he he got into biochemistry because of Watson and Crick, the impression that. Uh, in 1962, they were awarded the Nobel Prize for discovering the structure of, of DNA and opening up this new vista on biology and the secret of life. And he said at that time, he felt that, you know, he saw the train leaving the station and he wasn't on it. And he wanted to get on it. And that's what led him into to biochemistry and molecular biology. And then when he received his PhD, he started looking around for opportunities for practical applications, and that's the, the that's the roots of the company. Well, like other companies that that followed, the initial impulse was to do everything agricultural, industrial, therapeutics. When was there a pairing of that vision, and what did it move the company from and, and to? Mm -hmm. Well, the initial idea was to use some of Don Glazer's ideas, his technologies, um, mostly um, scanning technologies. He was a particle physicist and had invented the bubble chamber. Um, he decided to move into biology and studied molecular biology and wanted to improve strains of bacteria that are used for industrial purposes, for example, production of antibiotics and uh, and industrial enzymes. So initially, the company was working on these systems that they would induce uh, mutations in strains of bacteria and then select for uh, strains that were good producers and would uh, you know, generate greater yields and better products. And that was the initial vision of the company and for the, for the first several years. And they had some success. This is a new, new technology, a new approach. And basically this is the first industrial genetics. And they, uh, established partnerships with many large corporations that did not have the technology, but had funds to invest in specul speculative ventures, technology ventures like this one. So uh, Standard Oil of Indiana was one of the companies that they, they partnered with. Uh, and I think the idea was to, to create uh, microbes that would somehow uh, improve the, 
the recovery of hydrocarbons, of oil, uh, improve oil recovery. And uh, they worked on that for some time. And But it was interesting that you had this tiny startup working with this uh, giant corporation. And and they told Ron Cape, this is Ron Cape related to stories, that you know, they told him, we're bigger than Sweden. We don't understand you <laughs> and, and what you're doing. So he was, and this is really a, an important, uh, you know, establishing this pattern where you have these tiny startups that have these exclusive technologies that the big corporations don't have. Uh, that was important for the biotech industry to, uh, and that was a model. And really, CETUS established that. Well, you know, today a biotechnology executive has a lot of history to look at in terms of financing strategies, business models, a whole two chest to draw from as to how to build and finance a successful biotech. None of these things existed at the time for CAPE. How much of an innovator was he from a, a financing point of view and, or in terms of forming these types of partnerships? Um. Yeah, I think everything was innovative at that time because there there were no precedents, and uh, I think Cetus really was in the business of selling science, and they had to develop that, uh, learn how to market that, and Cape and and Pete Farley, his partner in particular, I, I think they were recognized as being uh, very good at promoting the technology, and and Moshe Alafe who was a lead investor in the company, you know, so he was impressed by their abilities to, to do that. And, uh, he, you know, he said these two guys could sell the Brooklyn bridge. And, uh, so they were, they were very good at, at promoting the technology, even when it wasn't clear whether, you know, this stuff would work or not. You know, is there, there, there were questions, there were plenty of skeptics, is this all hype? Is this and uh, Cape and Farley? I think you know took plenty of of heat from people to, to you know what's the what's the real stuff here? And uh, Cape tells a story, a really funny story um, about uh, how they you know they had various technologies and and they're trying to trying to promote them and. Uh, the marketing strategy that Cetus has that this story represents it. It's, story of a little boy he's looking forward to his 10th birthday and his father sees this this birthday as an occasion to uh, teach his son some reality some uh, teach him that the world isn't always a wonderful place and there's sometimes disappointment so the father uh, fills a barn full of horse manure and uh, tells his son, "This is this is your your birthday present. Go into the barn and and see." <laughs> and he goes in, and you know, there's there's big piles of horse manure, and the the kid comes out, and he's got a big smile on his face. He's very excited, and his father, I don't understand. What what are you so excited about? And his son says, "Well, with all that horse shit in there, there's got to be a pony around here somewhere." <laughs> that was you know the idea. You know, we've got all these technologies. We're looking for applications. We're going to find out what works. We're going to go work in a lot of different areas to to see what we can come up with. And they did. They worked in on industrial enzymes and uh, the genetic engineering of microbes when recombinant DNA was invented, and uh, Genentech got underway and and showed that it could be. Uh, 
commercialized. Seed is followed, although uh, it's true that I, I think initially that um, Ron, I think Ron Cape would say that, that they were a little slow on that and didn't realize the immediate potential of recombinant DNA and didn't move on it immediately. So Genentech got ahead of them. Well, I think one other thing Ron uh, is noted for is his work uh, in, in promoting the industry to both the public and, and policymakers and seeing the need at that time to, to explain the new technology. How important was the work he did in that regard? Uh, he was a very visible figure and uh, an effective spokesperson for the technology and the industry. Uh, initially, as you recall, there was a good deal of controversy about um, employing recombinant DNA in particular. There were fears that um, you know, the, the technology, the use of the technology could generate biohazards. And there was a moratorium in the scientific community for, for some time, as and people said, we, we need to be really careful. Ron Cape was at Asilomar on the California coast when uh, scientists and journalists and uh, legal scholars and uh, Others with interests in the issue met and you know considered you know how to proceed. So he was involved in that. He testified before Congress in the seventies um, several times about uh, what the technology is, what are the real hazards, and, and what are the, the the real possibilities. And he was uh, involved in the formation. And uh, I think it's the year was 1981, the formation of the first uh, trade association to promote the interests of um, commercial biotech companies. And that was the Industrial Biotech Association. And I think uh, Les Glick at, Gen at GeneX was the the first president. And I'm, I'm not sure, Ron Cape may have been the, the second president, but they worked together to um, get to get together the original companies, and uh, so Biogen, Genex, Cetus, and you know a handful. Initially, Genentech did not uh, join in, but they they did shortly afterwards. One of the great successes to emerge from Cetus, although maybe not properly appreciated at the time by management, was PCR technology developed by Carrie Mullis, who later won a Nobel Prize for this work. PCR, which amplifies minute amounts of DNA, is is ubiquitous in labs and diagnostics today, not, not to mention TV crime labs. How significant would you say this was? The invention? It was, uh, it was a fantastic, uh, it was a giant leap forward. Um, it solved many problems. Being able to uh, make unlimited amounts of DNA. DNA was a really, uh, it was scarce. It was hard to find and it was hard to, hard to produce. DNA synthesis was, you know, was a, a difficult thing and, you know, very tricky. Um, but having this, this is basically a, a way of making unlimited copies of DNA. So, uh, it gave people supplies of this this vital stuff that they needed to conduct experiments and, and and move forward in science and move forward in technology and practical applications. And so that was huge. Um, and 
Yeah, it was the invention of, of Kerry Mullis and actually the, I think it was a difficult process. Um, Kerry Mullis was a brilliant guy, had a brilliant idea. Um, but it, it took a team at, at Cetus to, um, turn that into a product. And actually, I think here again, Ron Cape would say maybe they made some mistakes with that, um, in commercial strategy in terms of, um, at the, you know the way they they turned it into a product, but it was very important, and they they did ultimately let it go because uh, they decided. Um, Cetus had been criticized, you know, all along for not being focused enough on on um, making products and exploring too many technologies in too many different ways. Simultaneously, uh, in the late seventies, and uh, I think they they got into recombinant DNA in a serious way, and then in the eighties, really made the decision to become a therapeutics company. So, PCR was you know was a, it was a good tool, uh, but it wasn't the central focus of the company, and. Uh, so they they ultimately let it go. At the same time, when when Mullis proposed the idea of PCR, my understanding is while it was met with some skepticism, the the company said, "Well, we'll take a year and make it work." How much of a how much of the groundwork of the the culture that is the biotechnology industry, the 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 science driven culture, would would you say Cetus helped nourish? Yeah, I think Cetus is one of the places where that really began, um, and and because it was Cetus was started by scientists. Ron Cape was a scientist, and it was the same at Genentech. And I think there was this understanding that you know, we, basic inquiry. You really have to do these basic inquiries. You you have to uh, allow scientists the freedom um, to to conduct the research and and find out what can be done. Um, how things work at a basic level, and and then turn it, turn that into products. And I think that was always something at, at Cetus, uh, where there was this, there was the the policy was to preserve that kind of scientific freedom of inquiry, uh, with the the belief that that would in fact yield practical results, and. Uh, so scientists could publish, and somebody like Kerry Mullis, who had a great idea, it's not, you know, yeah, it wasn't when he made the invention, it wasn't clear that it could be turned into a product. It wasn't clear that this was going to change the world, but he was given the freedom to develop it and to find out uh, what could be done with it. And I think Cetus did a wonderful job with that. They had a, a great group of people working on that, and after PCR was sold, it was sold to Roche, um, the, that PCR group went with the technology and did great work later on in, in diagnostics, developing all sorts of uh, applications for, for PCR and uh, advancing the technology and improving it. So all of that started at Cetus, and, and that really did impact the entire industry. It was important. Cetus pursued beta interferon as a as a cancer drug. It, it was not a success for them, but it later became an important MS drug, beta seron. 
the the other drug that was central to the CETA story was interleukin-2, which was seen as a breakthrough cancer therapy, potentially. Genentech and Immunex at the time were both seeking to do the same. How, how did that competition shape the early days? Um, well, it was hugely important. Um, and I think from the beginning, Cetus and Genentech, there was always competition there. And Genentech was always ahead with recombinant DNA and, and turning turning um, cloning genes and creating um, therapeutic recombinant proteins. Um, and I think it initially, you know, in the early years, the um, Cetus was the first genetic engineering company, but then Genentech came along, and after that, the industry you know, was known as Genentech and the Seven Dwarfs because they were way ahead of everybody. So everybody's trying to catch up, and and Genentech was the model, and I think that focus on therapeutic proteins is, you know, this is this is what we need to do. This this is where the mar- the margins are. Um, this is the right business strategy, and it's uh, it's scientifically doable. So I think there was great pressure uh, to engage in competition in in that area. And you know, Cetus was one of many companies that was sort of following Genentech in that way. Well, Cetus really bet the bank on interleukin two. There was a big buildup uh, on manufacturing and, and on sales and. When the FDA delayed the approval of the drug, it really began to to be the undoing of Cetus. I think at the time, Cetus merged with Chiron, which was forced into finding a, an acquirer. It, it was seen as a bit of a failure, the, the consequence of bad decision-making, overconfidence, and, and just expanding too fast. Cape wasn't CEO at the time these problems developed, but he was brought back in to try to preserve the, the company's independence. In retrospect, does Cape and Cetus get reappraised? What is what is his legacy? Um, well, he's a, a pioneer. Uh, they made mistakes, and and Ron Cape uh, readily ad- admitted that. Um, but you know, they they were <laughs> exploring a wilderness without a map, and um, they did great things. Um, they invented PCR. They did those those two drugs. Uh, that the, the development began at, at Cetus, and they were later approved by um, by the FDA. Uh, Chiron had them approved, so I would not call those projects failures. And the the other thing that's important is uh, the, the real, one of the real contributions that Ron Cape made is um, Cetus became a model for uh, sustaining. Uh, innovative science and technology over many years when, I mean, it takes a long time in, in the, in computers and software, uh, you know, the, the development times are, everything moves much faster. So investors can get returns very quickly if, if the technology is successful. Um, in biotech, uh, I think initially there was hope that, oh, this is going to be just, this is another Silicon Valley thing and and it's we'll, we'll get immediate returns and it's all great but in fact it especially when you're talking about uh, therapeutics that have to go through the the regulatory process and FDA approval um it takes a dozen years and that's a long time to sustain um 
these hugely expensive projects. And Ron Cape and his uh, colleagues at, at CETUS uh, were one of the first to develop multiple strategies for for enabling companies to to advance and and work on technologies over time. So, uh, as I mentioned, I've been a little surprised by by the lack of of coverage Ron Cape's death received, and I can go into some theories about journalism today why that's so. But I'd like to hear from you as a historian and the work you're doing at the Life Sciences Foundation about. Why history matters, particularly the history of an industry? What do we learn from it? How does it inform the present and the future? Well, uh, you know, it's almost a cliche that, um, <laughs> you know, if you don't pay attention to, to history, you're doomed to repeat it. Um, I think looking at the history, first of all, to understand where we're at, uh, it's, it's necessary to go back and to understand the process. Well, here we are. How did we get here? And to, to understand why things are are done the way they are, uh, and to to understand uh, the realities of, for example, um, it just the the fact that it takes forever to to make a a, a successful drug, and I, I think that's that's something that the biotech industry had to learn over many years. It, initially, it, the idea was that. This is a new way of making drugs, and it's going to be better than pharmaceutical chemistry. It's going to be faster, and it's going to be cheaper. Uh, that turned out to, not to be true. I mean, the biological drugs have uh, uh, served as platforms. Biology has served as a platform for uh, new treatment modalities, so it's improved the, the pharmacopoeia, but... Uh, you know, it hasn't been cheaper and it hasn't been easy. And so understanding that struggle, uh, that I think that informs, it, it continues to inform uh, entrepreneurs uh, and investors. Mark Jones, Director of Research for the Life Sciences Foundation, who's currently working on a history of the life sciences industry to be published in 2016. Mark, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for having me. few housekeeping notes. On our sister podcast, Rarecast, you can hear about a father's search for a cure for his son's rare disease as Alain Gannot discusses why he launched Solid Ventures. And starting January 16th, Pearlstein Labs' Ethan Pearlstein will discuss his experience with crowdfunding. Next week on the Bio Report, be sure to tune in for a look at the M&A scene with Ian Wise, Jeff Green. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.